Welcome to our Roots Say That We're Sisters podcast. This podcast series is sponsored by the Marquette Forum with support from Marquette University's Office of Institutional Diversity and Inclusion and the Haggerty Museum of Art. It's an extension of a Marquette University mural project to highlight and uplift diverse women-identified individuals whose images and contributions have been systematically made invisible. The artist, Mauricio Ramirez, used photographs of BIPOC women associated with Marquette as inspiration for the images in the mural. The Our Roots Say That We're Sisters podcast preserves the stories of female-identifying students, faculty, staff, and alumni who've used their gifts to make a meaningful impact on others, especially those who remain unsung heroes. I'm your host, Sheena Carey, from the Diedrich College of Communication. Joining us today is Dr. Nakia Gordon, Associate Professor of Psychology. Thank you for joining us today to share your story. Thank you. I'm really delighted to have been asked. It's really a pleasure. So what is the story you'd like to share today? So open-ended. Given the purpose of this project, I've thought a lot about, or recently I've been thinking about, what is the story? What's the story that I think is relevant? And this morning, as I was thinking about it, I was reminded about how much I think that coming from Detroit really plays a role in like who I am and where I am. So I grew up in Detroit in the 80s, and kind of what I was reflecting on this morning is there was definitely a narrative about places like Detroit at that time, but it wasn't my lived experience. And I always tried to wonder, like, where's the inner city? Who is that? I live in the city. Is that inner city? Because it doesn't reflect what I'm hearing about inner city. So it was always a source of confusion. But what I think about is I went to a Detroit public school. It was a college prep school. And so all of my friends were these amazingly intelligent students. And that wasn't the only school, right? There was another school like that that was larger than the one we went to. And I've been thinking a lot recently because I'm still in touch with sort of the core group of friends, both men and women who I went to school with, right? And let's say there's eight of us, seven of us have at least a master's degree, three of us have PhDs. And that's not the, that wasn't our community, Right. But that was something that we each kind of used who we were to move forward in the world in a way that makes sense. And I just think about how much that is sort of a juxtaposition against what the narrative has been around most cities. I think Chicago, other places like that. And it really kind of sets a tone, right? When you have these people who are like you doing these amazing things all throughout your youth, right? And then you come to these other spaces and you're like, huh, this is different from where I grew up. This is different than my lived experience. How do you identify? I identify as a Black woman. So how did you get onto your path? So again, going to this college prep school, right, where we're all like, you all are the best and brightest, you're the smartest, right? Science, math was heavily endorsed, right? We took a lot of those courses in high school. And so I went to the University of Michigan, you know, like, oh, I'm smart. I can do math and science. And I usually tell students that I'm mentoring or when I'm telling my story that a medical doctor was my backup profession. (laughs) I never wanted to be a medical doctor, but just like, well, I can do this kind of work. But I was interested in psychology, right? I was interested in just the way that people are, not so much the disorder side, but just like, wow, people are just like these interesting creatures. One of my first social science classes was, and I'm reflecting now, it was probably something called, you know, the sociology of race and gender. And I just could not 
right? Everything about that class was like, women are at the bottom. Black people are at the bottom. Black women are at the bottom. And again, it wasn't my lived experience. But here you have these scholars, right? All of this scholarship, books, articles, reinforcing this idea. And I was just like, I'm not. I'm not doing any more social science ever. (laughs) And I am a psychologist, but the path that I think that sent me on was looking at, so I'm trained as a behavioral neuroscientist. And that was purposeful, right? I also was like amazed by what the brain could do. And it felt like, okay, this is the right fit. I can ignore, right? And of course, that isn't entirely true. But at the time, it felt like, well, I can ignore all of this stuff, right? That doesn't sit with my experience, what I believe about the world. Like, I can't really rectify that now. I can still understand people and I can just approach them from this really reductionist biological way, which the work I do now (laughs) looks more like social psychologists. (laughs) I was going to ask you, because as you were talking about the scholars, often they didn't necessarily look like the people that they were studying. Once you got into it as a, a doctor of psychology, are there some ways in which you've tried to pull those disparate views of race, gender, identity? Yeah. I had a period of time where I did neuroimaging and I was very clear that I did not want to do race kind of work with neuroimaging because I knew that I did not want to contribute to that scholarship that says, oh, look at the brains of Black people. Look at the brains of what, like, I didn't want to in any way contribute to even allow some work that I did to be looked at or interpreted differently than I wanted. So I really avoided kind of that bio aspect just because of how the kind of systematic races or how biology had been used to reinforce racist ideas. So I stayed away from it. More recently, as I've kind of just gotten back into some of the work that I do around emotions, I have actually ventured out and tried to understand the narrative or think about the ways that groups of people can possibly come together, right? How we might be able to build relationships rather than just thinking about us all as these completely separate groups of people who can never kind of come together. And perhaps we aren't thinking that so much these days. Well, I'm a Trekker. And one of the things that Star Trek taught me about people, and actually it's sort of divergent because the first iteration of Star Trek, the black and white version, you left the episodes feeling, okay, this is just never going to work. These strange people are never going to be able to connect on any level. And then you get to the next generation and you find out that they solve all the problems of race and gender and so forth and so on. And it gives you hope, but they don't give you any tips on how to do that. So Gene Roddenberry had this great big world that he created, but then he didn't tell anybody how to get to that point. So there's this part of me that feels that there's this hope that we can connect in a lot of different ways. But sometimes it's our humanity that keeps us apart. So one of the things that sort of stood out to me over the course of the last year, let's say, is that it really is our humanity that can bring us together. So one of the projects that we've done recently with 371 Productions and the Chicago Police and other Chicago community organizations was to develop a virtual reality scenario, right? And so we use kind of the community-engaged work to make sure that it was a scenario that was relevant, that people could buy into. And our goal was, can we build empathy within the virtual reality scenario, right? That was our goal. And if we do that, can we see that the way that people view the other in the scenario changes? 
And the way that we manipulated or tried to increase empathy was basically given a backstory, right? So we had these interviews where you got to learn more about the character. And we found that that, more than anything else, was how you built up this empathy. And the empathy that they felt at that time where they heard the backstories predicted actually a reduction in implicit racial bias, even though race wasn't a thing that we manipulated. All the characters in our scenario were Black. But you saw that participants who reported having empathy showed a reduction in implicit bias, showed an increased desire to engage. And these were police officers in this particular data set that I'm talking about, showed an increased desire to engage in peace circles and to engage in crisis intervention training. And so there is some, like there is something if we can figure out how to connect and leave everything else away, like, oh, I'm looking at you and you're this complex person with hopes and dreams and little weird things and great things. There's something there for us in that. Yeah, it sounds like what you did was you changed the backstory because I think that we tend to walk yes. into situations yes. thinking we know the story and we react to the yes. story we think we know. Well, and in our write-up in our scholarly paper, we're calling those the counter-stereotypical information, right? We present a backstory that counters the typical understanding or stereotype about that community member. So you're absolutely right. And it's actually perfect for kind of getting to talk a little bit about sort of the impact of this mural project that Marquette is doing. In what ways does the theme of the mural project, that is to provide a space for representation and celebration of diverse women, what ways does that resonate for you? The thing it makes me think about is the group on Marquette for women of color, right? And so there's an employee research group, and I know you're part of it. <laughs> And one of the co-directors right now, or yes. And when I come to that space, I am always, I want to say inspired, but also like it forces me outside of my little tiny bubble, right? So usually I gravitate towards other Black women. But when I'm in that space, there are all different colors. And I'm always like, oh, wow, what an amazing space to be in. What a space to not only feel comfortable, like there's some sort of shared unity, but also difference that I can appreciate, difference that I can learn from. And so I think this mural project, I see it as this overarching idea of what I get when I'm in that space. That's great. I love the spelling of the group, the XN, Mm -hmm. as opposed to the EN or the AN, which hold space for women who identify as women, but society maybe doesn't necessarily see them that way. Absolutely. So I'm really gratified by that. What do you feel has been Marquette's impact on the lives of women of color? I don't know. I think what we're seeing now, I do feel like Marquette is making a shift and whether that's been driven by those who are a part of it in collaboration with leadership, we're just starting to see those voices and those profiles being elevated. I've been at Marquette for 11 years. And I would say it's really now that you're starting to see this kind of highlighting, and I'll use the word again, elevating of women voices. We have leadership positions, but I feel like it's just now. And I think it could be exciting, right? There are lots of other voices, right? And so you have the race, the REIS group, and those people are so phenomenal and amazing in raising the importance of having these courses for our undergraduates, for our graduate students. And so I feel like in many different 
forms, you're starting to hear and see these voices that have been, as you say in the intro, kind of invisible for so long. Now, our backgrounds are kind of similar. I would suspect that when you came to Marquette, you came with a very strong sense of self-worth. What are the ways in which Marquette has either emphasized that, reinforced that, or, mm, I don't know, (laughs) impacted it in different ways? Yeah. I started with the story about me being from Detroit. I think a part that I didn't share. So in the 80s, for people who may not know, you had Black leadership. I mean, Detroit was a majority Black city with Black... Washington, (laughs) D.C. during the 70s. Come on. Chocolate City. (laughs) That's where I came from. (laughs) Right. And so there's a sense of, and maybe it's what majority culture gets all the time, right? Where you're like, no, this is where I belong. Like, this is who we are. And so you grow up with this strong sense of self that is, and then it's later that you understand like, oh, wait, people see me different. Wait, what? How could you possibly not see my greatness? (laughs) Right? Like, this is a whole thing? Huh? Hmm. I don't get that. <laughs> never once occurred to me that. It never occurred. I'm supposed to feel like this isn't my, oh, nah. <laughs> so, yes, right? In all the spaces, it's just like, yeah, no, nah, I got this. No, I'm good. I'm good. <laughs> I got this. And again, having this culture of friends and various things where, yes, all the things I was doing were supported by people who look like me, who were like me, who came from similar backgrounds. So, yes, coming to Marquette with that same sense of like, no, nah, I'm I got this and I can just work in my lab and in my office and do the things I have to do. And I think that you learn or learning starting with college. Like I said, I went to University of Michigan. It's a very different culture. You learn how to be in white spaces. And I'm not looking for anything in those spaces, right? I get poured into or I find those places where I need to fill myself in other ways. And so At Marquette, I really wasn't looking for them to add to me. (laughs) And I don't know if that's good or bad. What I liked, though, is talking to McNair students or being asked to sit on various panels where, where I can sort of tell my story to incoming students or students who are here. And I always tell it exactly the way I am and I because that's the only way I can be. And what I also hope is that that gives them a sense that they can be exactly who they are and the way they want to be, right? And that requires a level of self-confidence. And I assume that they have it, right? Because there's just this ingrained, you just learn to have it. But I'll say there have been challenges, not so much from colleagues and leadership. I mean, there hasn't been as much support in some cases as I would have liked, but mostly from students. I remember I was here maybe a year or two Father Pilars was the president, and he asked to have a group of diverse faculty come and talk. And so since I was relatively new, this is one of the first spaces where I got to be in touch with other diverse faculty. And I remember somebody asking me very directly about my teaching scores, which is an interesting first question. I was like, oh, yeah, they're terrible. And she was like, yep, for all the Black women at Marquette they seem to be terrible. And we talked about some of the comments that we get. And it's just like, oh, you always get that comment too? Mm-hmm. It's either how you're dressed or well, it's talk all- too much about this. Or, mm-hmm. <laughs> or just this more vague, like she's disorganized. And I recently had some confirmation that that's a comment just used to say, there's something I just don't like and I don't have anything specific because one of my 
white colleagues who is the most organized person I have ever met. Recently got that in her evaluation and she understood it's probably just COVID and them being generally dissatisfied. And I was like, oh, that feels consistent with when you're just unhappy. (laughs) But the research supports that par for the course nationally. If you're a woman, if you're a woman of color, if you're a person of color, then those are the kinds of comments that you tend to get. Mm -hmm. And it's never about the scholarship. It's usually something about personality or something ephemeral Mm -hmm. that they just just doesn't quite fit for what we're interested in. Yes. And so I would say in that way, and if I'm being fully vulnerable and honest, I mean, it has shaken my confidence about the kind of teacher I am. And then I have to remind myself, no, there are profound ways that I know I've touched students. But, you know, this quote unquote objective measure that ties into our promotion and tenure, ties into our annual evaluations for merit races. And it's just like, when am I going to get over the hump of this? I mean, so it's impacting me personally, right? Because of course I want to do an amazing job. (laughs) Of course I want to have what I think I'm giving the students reflected in what they say they received. But also I don't want to be viewed as not as great of a professor because I have these teaching evaluations, right, that are really low or lower than whatever. So I think that's some ways that haven't been good. And I don't know that it's Marquette specific. It might be, who knows? I mean, you say it's national, so. Yeah, yeah, I think it's just the way things tend to go. So who inspires you? Who are the women of color that you look to for inspiration? I have a hard time with this question, mostly because of that. (laughs) I'll share this story and whether it makes it into the podcast or not. So I was recently with my brother. We were just in the car driving home and I don't see him a lot, right? We don't get to spend a lot of time together. He lives in Detroit and we were just chatting. It was around the holidays and he must have been saying something about a celebrity. And then he said, he's like, well, you know, I don't really care about celebrities. Like, I don't even know what I'm saying. Like, I don't really care about celebrities. And then there was a pause. And then at the exact same moment, (laughs) word for word, we both said, because they ain't sweeter than me. (laughs) It's because you were raised right. You were raised right. And so I have a hard time with that question because I don't necessarily look outside for inspiration or look to other people. But I can for sure identify people whose work I really value. And I think it's probably because it's you sitting here. I think about people like Octavia Butler. (laughs) Oh, (laughs) Sheena just showed me her shirt that has different books of amazing female writers and Octavia Butler's on there. So I think about these people who clearly have been inspired by something and they are able to talk about the world in a way that is both sort of forward-looking and inspirational, but real. And it really gets you to think. And so I would say for her as an example of someone who I, she just stays with me. (laughs) I read her novels I don't know, 15 years ago, 20, and they just stay with me. And so I guess I can backtrack a little bit. There is something inspiring about, wow, this woman who was writing in this field where there wasn't anyone who looked like her when she first started writing that field. And just to write these phenomenal stories, like I'm proud. It's more I'm proud. I'm proud of her. I'm proud to be within a group of people who is connected to her. Mm-hmm. Yeah, she was an amazing woman. Prescient, very prescient and a little scary (laughs) because I 
think we're beginning to live in those days uh, yeah. that she wrote about a dozen <laughs> right. or so years ago. What impact do you hope to have on women of color? For them to be their full selves, right? I hope that I live in a way where people see me as like, oh, she's just fully her and that they can do the same. I think that's the what I really hope. One of the things that I have done in my department is just gather up the Black students, the Black graduate students who are in our department just as a space to give them a space, a space to feel comfortable, a space to, if they want kind of direct mentorship, that's fine, but I'm not really there for that. And I am my full self. And I just, for anybody really, but I think for us in particular, right? Because as I said, you come into these I'm going to call them white spaces. And it's a different kind of culture. And so you learn how to navigate it and be in it. It isn't always the most authentic space. And so I have this hope that like, (laughs) I mean, I think I do this, but to even more like, nope, I get to bring my full culture, my full self to these spaces as well. So I think that, right? So just being these complex people who are amazing in so many ways and just being able to live that. Sounds good. What hopes do you have for your future and the future? (laughs) I think for my own future, to keep finding those parts of me to be able to share, right? That may be underdeveloped or untouched as of yet. And I think for the future, all of us really digging into seeing each other's humanity more. Just really seeing people for who they are at their core. Is there anything else you'd like the Marquette community to know about you? No, nothing that comes immediately to mind. Well, they have to know if they don't know by now that they're not sweeter than you. That's for sure. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, they could never be. (laughs) So my, he will be 13 next week or tomorrow, actually. He was in the car and he was confused. He didn't understand, right? He didn't understand kind of the slang. Like he just didn't get it. And so in a parenting moment, he's just like, I don't even know. What does that mean? And I was like, well, what it really means is you can look at these people, right? So let's use a Michelle Obama. Let's use a Beyonce. And they're great in the ways that they are great, right? They have these, this greatness about them. I was like, but I'm never going to elevate their greatness over my own, <laughs> And then I said to him, and you should never elevate your greatness over anyone either. Right. And so I was able to figure out the parenting message and I would want Marquette to come back and understand that, (laughs) right, that it's that, right? Like we are all, we all have this greatness and that's fantastic. And to never position it above anyone else's. Yeah, that was actually my favorite part in the original series, Roots the ceremony where the father would take the newborn child, raise him to the sky and say, behold, the only thing greater than you. And I think that's a lesson that we don't consistently teach our children, that there is really nothing greater than you. And that if we can't do anything else, if we can do that, I think there might be some changes. Perhaps. Perhaps. Fingers crossed. (laughs) I wonder what Gene Roddenberry would say about that. (laughs) Thank you so much, Dr. Nakia Gordon, for joining us today and sharing your story. Your story stands as a testament to the amazing stories in our community yet to be uncovered. Our Roots Say That We're Sisters podcast and The Mural Project seek to make these stories visible. 
Again, thanks to our sponsor, the Marquette Forum, Marquette's Office of Institutional Diversity and Inclusion, and the Haggerty Museum of Art for your support for this project.